that the church, you didn't all come to church this morning. This is a building. In spiritual terms, if I wanted to get all King James with you, it's wood, hay, and stubble. All right? We gathered as a church. We didn't come to church. We are the church. People are the church. And so we are wrestling with, and I want to remind everybody, if we are the church, how do God's people then live life? How are we supposed to live towards each other and towards the city of St. John's as they watch us? Now again, disclaimer, it is 1145. Okay? And the words of the old movie, Smokey and the Bandit, I've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Okay? So this is likely going to turn into another two-parter. I'm going to watch till either you start to nod off, get a real angry look on your face, or completely disinterested, and then I'll close, okay? But we're going to look at the idea that we are the church, and how do God's people then live life? Now, at the risk of being cliche with everything, I tried to pick the songs, the scripture, the fact that Tim is here and Mark presented, the fact that you just watched this video, to try and do the obvious, which is to be the people of God, to really be the people of God, the first thing we must be about is prayer. Is prayer. So rhetorically, as you think there in the quietness of your own seat, what are your thoughts about prayer? What do you think of prayer? Do you struggle with it? Uh, yes. Just by way of public confession. I'm going to talk about that a lot. What are your questions about prayer? I've been around Christianity since I was about five years old. I've been to countless prayer meetings. I've been to all-night prayer meetings. I've been to New Year's Eve prayer vigils. I've been to every type of prayer thing you can think of. And I have had all kinds of questions from this age right on up to where I am now about what do I pray? How do I pray? To whom am I praying? Does it make a difference if I pray? All of these types of things. And I've struggled. I've heard countless sermons on prayer. I've read books. I'm reading a book right now on prayer by Tim Keller. Wonderful book, by the way. But if I said to you this, and I think it'll be on the screen, Christian ministry, spiritual work, is not accomplished by might, ability, or technique, but by prayer. Can I get a witness? Amen? Amen? Yeah, okay. Praying is the most important thing God's people do. Yes? Amen? Really? Like, are you pulling my leg? No? Okay. So, then why does it seem like it's not really a big deal in our churches? Or it's really mechanical? Or it follows a form? So, you know, just as the world has urban myths, so do church. I remember hearing this particular story in church, and so you guys are going to hear it from me maybe for the first time. I have no idea if it's true, but it really sells in a sermon, all right? All right. So I have no idea if this is true or not, but this is a, a Christian urban myth of a church that existed, and they had a beautiful building, had a beautiful piece of property in the middle of the city. They were really doing great ministry for the Lord, reaching all age brackets and social societies. But the landowner next door sold his property to a gentleman who bought it and built a very elaborate strip club. And it wasn't just a discreet strip club. It was an in-your-face kind of one with the billboards and the signs and all of the other sin that spills out from that kind of environment. And so the church got a burden and they gathered and they prayed that God would shut that strip club down. And they prayed 
and they prayed. And wouldn't you know it, after months, there was a vicious thunder and lightning storm in which the strip club got hit by lightning and burned to the ground. The owner of the strip club sued the church, <laughs> took them to court, and sued them because he said they were liable and responsible for his strip club burning to the ground. Here's the irony. The church got a lawyer and pleaded they had nothing to do with it. And the judge in his uh, uh, presiding over the court said, now here's irony. The reprobate, unbelieving pagan believes more that God can answer prayer than the church does. Is that true of us? I don't know about you, but I've reached a point in my life where I don't want to play church anymore. I don't want to be religious. I want to have a living, vibrant, powerful relationship with Jesus Christ, and I want to wrestle through this idea of prayer. Now, what would you think if I told you that prayer brought down the Berlin Wall? Would you believe me? Really? I think some of you are just saying yes to make me feel good. Prayer brought down the Berlin Wall. In May of 1989, at Leipzig, in the historical Nikolai Kirk, the St. Nicholas Church, where the Reformation had been introduced exactly 450 years earlier, a small group began to meet in one of the church's rooms to read the Sermon on the Mount and pray for peace. The group expanded and moved to a larger room and finally began to meet in the church's nave, which began to fill up. Alarmed, in East Germany at the time, the communist authorities sent officials to attend the prayer meetings. They threatened the gatherers, temporarily jailed some, and on prayer nights they would block the city's nearest autobahn off-ramp. Then on October the 9th of 1989, some two thousand individuals crowded in to pray for peace and another 10,000 gathered outside and soon the Berlin Wall came down. Is that a coincidence? No. This was the kind of response of a caring, all-powerful God to the prayers of his people. Let me say something and I will conclude my sermon with it both this week and next. And if you want to write this down, write it down. Here is the summation of what Paul is trying to say to Timothy, who is to go to the Ephesian church and get this church praying. And this is it, all right? Here's the entire sermon in a sentence for you. It won't be on the screen. It's just here for me to tell you. Prayer changes things. It doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. All right? Prayer changes things. And I said that in a church we're supposed to be known for our reformedness. All right, this high view of the sovereignty of God. But prayer changes things. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul told Timothy, I'm sending you to the church at Ephesus because they have gotten way off track. The leadership's a mess. The church is a mess. They're arguing over all kinds of stuff, including uh, future events. They've got their little cliques. The leaders are in a bad way. They want to act as if they've got it all together and they don't know anything about what they're talking about. And he basically, in summary, says, guard the gospel, 
celebrate the gospel, and fight for the gospel. Now, I read this, and I have to tell you, with my personality, if Paul was writing this to me, and he's like, Steve, I'm sending you in to a church, and it's messed up. I want you to go in there. I want you to fix it. I'd be like, yes, get the guns. Load them with the 12 Bible verses that are the best ones I got. I'm going and calling a business meeting, and let us throw down. All right? Do you imagine the struggle I would have when Paul says, oh, and by the way, Steve, pray. First thing, pray. Oh, and by the way, get that church praying. If you would read all of 1 Timothy chapter 1, you would think that Paul would tell Timothy, I want you to go there. I want you to find those rogue leaders. I want you to have a business meeting. Get them voted out. I then you want you to have a big summit meeting and tell everybody, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Draw a line across the stand. Tell people to walk. And he says, no, no, no. Go there and get that church praying. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Paul writing to Timothy, but he's writing to Timothy to talk to a church. This is not for Timothy now to do personally. This is for Timothy to example corporately. First of all then, I urge you, I, I beseech you, I command you, I cannot strongly emphasize this enough for you, Timothy. I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. If you write in your Bible, I want you to circle for all people. Not for some people. Not for the people you like. Not for the people you think you want to pray them into hell and damnation. Not the people you want to declare your holy version of justice upon. I want you to pray supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, notice his first example. For kings. And all who are in high positions. This group of people lived in a tyranny. They were an occupied people. The guy in charge at the time is a guy named Nero. You know what he did with Christians? He used them as human torches in his garden during his parties. That's what he was known for. Paul says, first example of who I want you to pray for, who I want you to supplicate for and intercede for, is kings and all who are in high positions. Now notice this, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, Timothy. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, again, notice this, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he Wraps it up, he says, Timothy, listen, tell that church, get them praying, understanding this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now watch how Paul finishes this thought, how personally he makes this. He goes, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And I love that he says this. I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying. He's writing to Timothy. But you can tell he really wants Timothy. Timothy, this is our calling, dude. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word.
If we are to be a people, a church, who are about the gospel, who know the gospel, who can actually explain the gospel and who can live it out before each other and the world, then we must be, we have to be, a people who pray. Even though it's difficult. Even though it's a struggle. And I'm not talking about mechanical, rote, programmatized prayer. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul is talking about. We live in a culture that has taken even Christianity and turned it upside down. I love this quote. Leonard Ravenhill, an old preacher, quoted this person. He says, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome where it became an institution. Next it moved to Europe where it became a culture. And finally it moved to America where it became a business. If we've ever lived in an age when Christianity is a business, we live in it now. We market everything. There are websites for everything. We don't just have Bibles. We have Bibles that are lambskin covered that have wide margins if you want to write in them. They are big print or small print. You can have any version of a study Bible you want. In fact, most of us don't have just one Bible. We have multiple Bibles. We go to multiple Bible studies, and we have all kinds of stuff. We have perfected the art of making a business of Christianity. Now, I'm sorry. The first part of this sermon is a little heavy. But we've made a business out of Christianity. And that's why most of our city doesn't know we exist. And the rest thinks we're a bunch of morons. That's the reality. Because they're starving to see genuine Christianity. Something that's not built on checklists. Something that's not built on if you screw up, we're your scarlet letter, or we're going to play comparative righteousness games, or we're going to argue over the minutia of the Bible that none of us is smart enough to know because only God can know. I love the fact that we argue over the book of Revelation. Considering that twice in the book, John gets messed up, and he's there seeing it. And in writing his stuff down, several times God tells John, don't write that down. So we already know there's stuff that we're not even supposed to know. And yet we act like we know it all. And then we argue about it, and then we form our little cliques and camps about it. And then you wonder why the people out there that are wondering how to make ends meet, and they're wondering how to make sense of the brevity of life, and they're wondering how to make sense of genocide on theories and all these types of things, and we're saying, well, we're arguing whether it's pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, or whatever trip. Really? Here's the essential. Jesus is coming back. That's a guarantee. You have to believe that to have a gospel. When he's coming back, I'll let him tell me. Now, I've got an opinion, and I'd gladly share it with you. But to fight over it, or act like my opinion has more weight than yours, means, you know what? We're not praying enough, because we've lost our focus. So we start today in the nitty-gritty. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 of Timothy. I have to tell you, we're going to get in 
neck deep into some controversial junk. All right? We're going to be dealing with leadership, male and female and gender stuff. We're going to deal with culture. We're going to deal with money. We're going to deal with end times. I mean, you, you name it, we're dealing with it. And you know what? Paul says, if in order for this church to handle all of this, you got to get that church praying. Calvary Baptist, if we are going to be a church of the living God, we got to get praying. So you'll notice my first point, all P's, man, I worked hard at this, all right? And I'm not even going to have time to really flash it all in front of you. But my first P is this, the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. Paul begins with, first of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made. Now, this is what you must be about from the very beginning. Timothy, get Ephesus to stop arguing, to stop being elitist, to stop thinking they've got it figured out. Get them to stop thinking that the gospel is in all who can conform to their, their version of stuff. Get them praying. In other words, get your focus right. Get the people unified around the gospel. Get the gospel right. Get your theology right. Get your perceptions of others right. Get your passion, your love, your forgiveness, your urgency, your mission right. And how do you do that? Start with prayer. Start with prayer. I may not get it to the, get to it this morning, so I'm going to say it while it's still fresh in my head. I think it was John Owens who said, it is really hard to hate someone that you will pray for. And when I see in church so many bickerings and fightings, so many splits, so many harbored hurts and bitternesses, and then you really ask someone, have you prayed for them? Uh-huh. What do you mean? Well, I, I, I prayed their name at some point. No, no, no. I mean, have you labored in prayer for even your enemy? Because, sermon in a sentence, prayer changes things. There's a priority of prayer. Now stop and think about that for a minute, all right? How much of a priority is prayer for us? Really, for us, collectively as a church? Because this is not an option. This is a command, and it's a command for the church. It's not just a person. This is not Paul telling Timothy, Timothy, you pray. No, it's Timothy, lead the church in prayer. It's not just for a pastor. Calvary Baptist, I love you, and I pray for you, and by God's grace, I labor at it, and I struggle at it, but you are powerless if I'm the only one praying. It is not even for the elders. It's not just for Paul and Daniel and Steve. It is for us as a church to be in prayer. It's a calling for all of us as a people. Now look at what he does. Look at how he says it. I urge that supplications, that prayers, that intercessions, and thanksgiving. He just keeps piling up all of these words that you and I understand as prayer. He says, I want you to intercede for people. I want you to supplicate for people. I just want you to pray for people. I want you to thank God for people. And I want you to be thankful in all of these things. He's pretty much summing up everything that we would pray, doesn't he? Anything and everything you can think about to pray is summed up in those words. The point that Paul is making is this. Before you start ministry, before we build programs, before we start blasting out our opinions of the Bible and doctrine and people and government and issues, we pray. Because our priority is prayer. 
Now I want you to see what Paul is doing. He is not talking to Timothy. He's talking to Timothy to get a church praying. And guys, listen, I want to be honest with you. And I want to be blunt. I am not talking about mindless, mechanical prayer. And I grew up in a scheduled prayer meeting. And this is not an indictment against the idea of it itself. It's an indictment of what I've seen it become. In my, early in my ministry, when I was in my early 30s, I still pastored at a church that had a regularly scheduled prayer meeting at Wednesdays at 7 o'clock. And I was horrified one day because I was driving with my sons. Abby was freshly born. Freshly born. That sounds really cool. Doesn't it? Freshly born. She was freshly born. She was the newborn, and Debbie had to stay home with her. So it was me and the boys driving up to prayer meeting. And in the back of the van, I heard my boys, heard my boys having a little competition. They were naming people that were going to be at prayer meeting, and they were reciting their prayers. They had been around people that had come together, and prayer meeting had become so mechanical, such a form of formality. They, they literally, they had a competition. And what scared me is two or three of the men that they named, I happened to be in that group in prayer. And both God forgive me and God help me. I almost laughed out loud because these men prayed exactly what my boys said they would pray. In the order, even the, some of them prayed in King James English. Guys, that's not prayer. That's a form of religion. And we got to get up our, off our high horse and think because we gather and we've got programs and we've got buildings and we do things that sanctimoniously make us feel good about ourselves. The world is watching going, yeah, you gather, but what happens? Because here's the thing. Prayer changes things. Real prayer changes things. And I want to be honest and blunt with you that I struggle with prayer. I do. Give me a task. Let me sing. Let me preach. Let me go have coffee with the guys. Let me, give, let me have pizza. Let me have lunch. Let, give me a work project. We, we changed all the, the sound system in case any of you haven't noticed yet. We changed a few things here. Everybody relax. Nobody die on me or have a heart attack. Right? But here multiple nights this week till late in the morning. And by the way, John Anderson, really smart dude. And I, I yeah, just really smart dude. But um, so thankful for the way God puts the body of Christ together. But give me a project. Give me something to do. I'm all in. But tell me to go into my office, shut the door, get on my hands and knees, and just cry out to God for people. It's a lot of struggle for me. Sometimes I feel like I'm not doing anything. I feel like, how is this that this counts? And yet... Martin Luther is reported of saying that one day he got up and he told his wife of all the things he had to do. And he so told her, I got this to do today and this to do today, this to do today. And he said, so to accomplish this, I need to spend about three to four hours in prayer. I think it was Bill Hybels that wrote the book, Too Busy Not to Pray. And so I want, with full disclosure, tell you that when Paul tells this church, when Paul tells me, when Paul tells us as a church, Calvary Baptist, that we need to make a priority of prayer, that I'm not up here to tell you that I've got leathered knees. I don't. I struggle with this, but I'm so thankful for God's word. Because if you're like me and you're like, Steve, I know how you feel. I know we should do it. I know there's power in it. I know prayer change, but I struggle. Well, here's the good news. 
In Romans chapter 15, Paul writes to the Romans and says, Strive or labor with me in prayer. So Paul even knew that it was going to be work. It wasn't, hey, listen, take the easy road, pray. No, he knows that prayer was going to be difficult. He tells the church at Colossae this, and he writes it in Colossians chapter 4. Paul writes this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. I love this. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And this is what he struggled. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I take comfort in the fact that I'm not the only guy who struggles with prayer. Prayer doesn't come easy to me. But it's worth it. We got to struggle in prayer. Now, what might amaze you about the church and prayer in your New Testament is just how much corporate prayer is focused on. The word pray, praying, or prayer is used in excess of 90 times from Acts to Revelation. The word prayer is used 40 time, 42 times alone. And in almost every reference, it's always focused on a group praying together. In Acts chapter 1, when the 120 are gathered, all these were one accord, all these with one accord were devoting themselves, plural, to prayer. Now, listen to this, all right, because I'm going to lay down the whole gender thing in a few weeks. But notice this, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, they were all together and they're all praying together. And we know what happens next, right? The Holy Spirit comes and the church is not born but empowered because the church is born in Jesus Christ. Just saying. Well, listen to what happens in Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves, plural, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, follow me through with this. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, notice. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. Do you realize that when the first church first started, they eliminated poverty? They eliminated poverty. An empowered, praying church showed the world what biblical socialism looks like. Because when it's biblical, it'll work. The reason why I'm not a socialist today is because it's run by a bunch of sinners, including us. But the church was able to do it. And notice this, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And notice this, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I am still idealist enough to believe that if this church starts to pray, God will weakly save people in this city. That someone getting saved is not like we got to throw a ticker tape parade through downtown St. John's because we snatched one. No, where people are getting saved because the power of a praying church means that the power and the beauty and the scope and the mercy and grace of an almighty God penetrates the hearts of untold hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands in, yes, the rock of the rock, St. John's. Because if you think 
that anybody here is more powerful than God's gospel. You don't serve a really big God. But it starts with prayer. The priority has to be prayer. In Acts chapter 6, when practical problems arose among the people, the apostles said they need to keep prayer a priority. And that pleased the people. That pleased the people. In Acts chapter 12, when persecution and setbacks happened, the church prays. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You know what happens next? He's released. He's released. In Acts chapter 14, when the church got organized and put structure in place and the people pray, and it says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, prayers, Paul brings marriage into prayer. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Paul puts this kind of relationship in marriage. He says, you should be so in tune with God and with each other that there are times in a marriage when you agree as a husband and wife, we are going to deny ourselves the physical part of marriage so we can devote ourselves to prayer. When was the last time any of us did that? When was the last time any of us even had that conversation? And I'm fully in love with marriage and all the fringe benefits. But he says, then come back together again. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, listen men, husbands, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And here's why. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now it's getting real, isn't it? Husbands, when was the last time you went before the Lord and said, Lord, am I treating my wife with dignity and respect and understanding? Am I being an example to my children and how I treat my wife so that when I pray, it matters? Peter quotes the Old Testament and says this, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Over and over again, Paul makes step one of a Christian and the church to be prayer. It is the priority of why we exist. Again, I'm not saying... We're going to have a meeting Wednesday, and then we're going to line up all these prayer times. And we're going to prioritize it and all that. I'm saying, are we going to make prayer a priority? And, and I tried to practice that. God really convicted me. So on Tuesday night, we got together here as a group of guys. And John brought pizza, and we, and we had Coke. Now, he brought Coke, which means he's not quite where he needs to be in his Christian walk, because he didn't bring Pepsi. But... I still love him for bringing the Coke and the pizza. And we had pizza and Coke. And we checked things and we all did things and we hung out. And at the end of it, God moved me. I've been studying this. So I said to the guys, guys, can we pray? And it was like that most awkward of guy moments. Oh, crap, somebody got spiritual. <laughs> and guys, it was weird for me too. It was weird for me too because it is hard to say, I'm going to bring prayer into everything. I'm just going to be prayer. When you have your coffee or you have your lunch, don't just say grace, whatever that is. 
but actually pray for each other, with each other, for this city and this town, or your family, or co-workers, or friends, or neighbors. Why aren't we praying in every opportunity, over and over again, Paul will make prayer a priority. When we worship in prayer, we confess our sins in prayer, we praise God in prayer, we call for justice in prayer, we beg for mercy in prayer, we ask our questions in prayer, we express our fears and doubts in prayer. We need to be a praying church. Communion is next week, and I am going to need to bring the rest of this sermon to you next week. But as a way to conclude, I hope that you have already seen why prayer needs to be such a priority. Because back earlier, remember, without prayer, we're not going to accomplish anything. Or what we do accomplish, you know what's actually the greater tragedy of the church? It's not that we don't think that without prayer we're not going to accomplish anything. It's that we've worked really, really hard to try and pull stuff off, and we think that God's done it when it's all in our own strength. I think the greatest shock to us all is when we stand before God, and He's like, I love you, you tried so hard, and you never included me once. Have you not, as parents, seen that with your kids? You've watched your kids work so hard. Hey, parents, have you ever pulled this one off on your kids? If you would work half as hard doing what's right as you did doing what was wrong, you'd have a much easier life. Have you ever pulled that one off on your kids? That's like my favorite, right? When the kids, they don't want to clean the room, so they stuff it all under the bed or they stuff it all in the closet or they find pillowcases to put it in. They, they expend more energy trying not to clean up their room that if they just cleaned up their room, life would have been much simpler. How many churches spend a pile of energy trying to accomplish things with for, war, for Jesus instead of just gathering in prayer and saying, Oh, God, would you work among us? And then be shocked at what he does. If you really stop and think about how the church started, 12 misfits... 12 misfits. And yet, as we're going to see next week, when they get to stand before the leader, leaders and authorities of their day, it says they took note of these men that they were uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus. Guys, do you really think, and this church is blessed, i got to be honest, sometimes I'm intimidated by this congregation because your collective intelligence is just fearful. Like, I am shocked sometimes that you even called me to be your pastor because if any of you knew how dumb I am, it is probably the greatest selling job I've ever done. <laughs> but the power of the gospel is not in our degrees. The power of the gospel is not in how many books I got in my office or how many I've read or for me and Steve Da, how many books we've got in our Lagos Bible software program. The power of the gospel is in a transformed life. The priority of prayer. I want us to be a church where we believe that prayer changes things. And in response to John Knox, the great early church father, Mary, Queen of Scots, is reputed to have said, 
I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. And I will talk about this next week as we come to the Lord's table. I will lay out my heart and soul in this scripture before you as to why I do not believe we need to be protesting and marching and yelling and screaming at a bunch of people that are not saved. We should not be shocked when dead people do what dead people do. What we should be doing is praying. And I'll end on this little illustration and bring it to an application. The last election, I was still in Charlottetown, and Prime Minister Harper came to the city of Charlottetown and did a rally. And so my mom and dad were visiting with me, and my pastoral staff that I was with and my mom and dad decided to go down and hear the speech. Now, when my mom and dad visit this summer, Lord willing, and they come, you're going to quickly find out that I look like my dad and act exactly like my mom. All right? Which is probably why my mom embarrasses me so much. Because I see myself. And the older I get, the more quirky I see it myself. And it's all from my mom. I am my mom. My mom fears no one or nothing. And so when we went to this political rally, we're there. And I mean, the guys with the little thingies in their ears and the little springy things are all around everywhere. And mom does the thing, and, they're all, and mom says to me, I'm going to go speak to him. <laughs> and I was petrified. Because I had visions of mom being arrested or gang tackled or whatever. And I looked at my dad, and my dad's a very passive, quiet. I said, Dad, and, and I, I'm sorry because this sounds so sexist. I'm like, Dad, control your wife. <laughs> and dad looks at me and says, dude, if she's got it in her mind to go talk to him, she's going to talk to him. So, in full disclosure, the room was twice as big as this. It's packed. Mom makes a beeline for Prime Minister Harper. And I find the farthest quarter where I can be. I know where the door is. I got an eye on Mom, and I'm ready to duck and dive and leave quickly. And Mom gets to him. And you know how politicians are when they're leaving an event. They're, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies, and, but they're moving all the time. They never stop. Well, Mom got his hand, and she wouldn't let it go. And she held on to his hand for at least, I'm going to say, between two to five minutes. And I saw her talking, and she's talking, and I thought, Mom, don't be telling me you were telling him off, and everything like that. And then he got this really warm look on it, and then he hugs her. Now I'm intrigued. <laughs> so my mom, who I was embarrassed by, comes back, and I ask Mom, what did you say to Prime Minister Stephen Harper? She said, I shook his hand and told him that I loved him and that I was praying for him and that every day I would pray that he would know that it was God that either will or will not put him in power and that he will know the presence of God on his life. Now, partly because she's my mom and partly because I believe in God, I wonder how many times Stephen Harper remembers that weird woman in Brighton Drive that grabbed him by the hand and said, I'm praying for you. I went to a beautiful Shalloway concert last night where I heard hundreds of children beautiful singing in all kinds of ways. And they celebrated some very noble things, not the bully, the care, but ultimately they celebrated something that is sinful under the, under the umbrella of something noble. It is true that as Christians, we should never endorse hate or, or anything at all, physical or otherwise.
But actually, to be honest, and you can ask the wingers and ask the Pharisees, I was not at all bothered by what they were celebrating. What challenged me was how the world can celebrate stuff and the church were dead. I watched these people with joy and vibrancy and with a cause just, just yell out and sing out and display this cause and we sometimes act like we're embarrassed. Like we know God's there but he might or might not show up. I'll tell you how we fix that. If we start praying. If we really start praying together. When God lays it on your heart. If you're here this morning and you're like, Steve, listen, man. Wow, wow, you're wound up. And you seem to be into this. But I'm here and I've got questions. I don't even know if I believe in Jesus. Then I want you to know that we're praying for you as a church. That Jesus loves you and that he died for you. He lived perfectly the life you could never live. And you know what? My ultimate challenge for you, if you're here this morning doubting or questioning or wondering if you're even saved, I want you to know you can pray. Because I've never met the sinner who went to Jesus who Jesus didn't want. And for all of us that are Christians, yes, once again, I've lived up to my stereotype as being long-winded. But are we going to be a praying church? Where it would be weird if when we were together we didn't pray. Even if you're getting together as guys watching a hockey game. Imagine ending the hockey game in prayer. That would bring some perspective to life, wouldn't it? Especially with some of you that the Canadians have started losing. Maybe you're driven to prayer now. But imagine if we started making every area of life an area of prayer. I once read, don't ever go to bed and not kiss your kids goodnight, even if they're asleep. My mantra has been, many times I've snuck into my be kids' bedrooms, and I have not kissed them, but I have prayed over them. Prayed and begged God to work in their lives. Are we going to be a praying church? Because prayer changes things. I was going to teach you a new song, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to show you another video. Yes, I'm a little video crazy. It's four minutes, and I'm going to close in prayer, and we're done. But I want to bring home this idea that prayer changes things. And if you need to talk to anybody or you need prayer, please see one of us. Grab one of your friends don't leave just because it's weird or awkward. Seize the moment and pray. Let me show you this, and then we'll be done. And it's simply staggering that God would ordain, now get this, that God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, would ordain that prayers cause things. They do. Prayer. Prayers cause things to happen that would not happen if you didn't pray. I wonder if any Calvinists out there squirming. Listen to this. 
When James 4.2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. That does not mean you would have anyway even if you didn't ask because I got a plan. <laughs> the verse doesn't mean the opposite of what it says. It says you have not because you ask not. That means prayer causes things to happen that wouldn't happen if you didn't pray. This is why this is a staggeringly glorious privilege to be taken by the sovereign God of the universe who runs all things according to his infinite wisdom and fold it in to his causality. This is breathtaking. If you do not avail yourself of the privilege of bringing to pass events in the universe that would not take place if you didn't pray, you are acting like a colossal fool. Aren't you? I'm just thinking logically here. If you are offered the privilege of engaging with God in such a way that your request could bring into being things that would not otherwise come into being, not to avail yourself of that privilege is folly of the highest or lowest order. That's why we pray. God is beckoning us into our share in the running of the universe. Do you not know that you will judge angels? Do you know who you are, child of God? Let's pray. Father God, it is ironic to me that after being so passionate about prayer, I feel so unworthy to do it. So I cling to the fact that I'm your son because of Christ. And I run before you and admit that I am weak. We are weak, but in you great strength is found. And so I pray for every man and woman and young person in this room that we would know the freedom of letting go of whatever is not true in our lives we would be free to admit and openly talk about in prayer with you and with others in the community of faith our doubts and our questions, our struggles and our failures, our victories, our eureka moments when the Holy Spirit shows us things. Father God, I pray for the men of this church that we would indeed be godly men. I pray for the women of this church that they, our sisters in the family of God, would be godly women and collectively we would know as joint heirs with Jesus Christ the power of prayer. Father God, I plead with you for the next government of Newfoundland, the next government of Canada. Lord, we live in a world that is dark. We have no idea how much longer it will be easy to be Christians. 
And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen the church. And Father, I pray that you would save souls. Family members that are represented here. Father God, help us to be so in prayer that we learn how to let go of past hurts and past failures and past breakdowns in relationships. And we cling to the reality and the hope that the gospel is the answer to this city. Indeed, Lord, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? But you are convince us of the church. What does it profit the church if we convince the city of St. John's to stop abortion and they shut all the bars and they allow us to fly our flags and they do, let us do all of these things? But if they don't know you, they're still going to hell, Father. Help us to care more about people dying and not knowing you than if we can convince a culture to just agree with us. Give us a passion and a patience for those that are struggling. Let us not be shocked and surprised when the world doesn't act like it should. And Father, let us embrace with humility the fact that we are simply sinners saved by grace. We're not better than anybody. We don't deserve anything we've gotten. And I pray that you'd give us a passion for mission. Oh, Father God. Work in us. Increase our faith. In Jesus' name. All God's people say, Amen. God bless you, everybody. You are dismissed.